Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the MEM podcast. My name is Demi Wright and this week I have Dr. Martin Daxel, who's one of the acute medicine consultants at the East Surrey Hospital and also one of the ultrasound gurus. Hi Dr. Daxel. Oh hi Demi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to talk about the approach to the shocked patient and we'll be starting a bit with definition, a little bit about the types and an approach to how we should manage these patients. So Dr. Axel, I thought we could start this session off with a case to frame the topic. So let's say you're on call and a patient comes into resus and on looking at them, you can see their blood pressure is 70 systolic and tachycardic with a heart rate of 146. What's going through your mind at that point? Well, I mean, clearly this patient seems to be in shock with a very low blood pressure and the tachycardic and it looks unwell as well. So this patient is in shock. Okay. And how can we actually define shock? In general, shock is life-threatening disorder of the circulatory system that results in inadequate organ fusion. This results then in tissue hypoxia, what causes severe metabolic disturbances. And if we not reverse the shock, it ultimately leads to irreversible organ dysfunction and damage. Okay. I know that there are different types of shock. Are you able to walk us through those different types? I mean, there are four main type of shock. The most common probably is the distributive shock. So these are patients who are coming in with sepsis. Other distributive shocks could be anaphylaxic and neurogenic shocks. In pathophysiology behind that is a redistribution of body fluids due to vasodilatation and capillary leakage. So fluid is getting redistributed from the intravascular to the extravascular compartment. Less common then is hypovolemic shock. So this is typical our massive blood loss patient or fluid loss patients or patients with cholera or severe diarrhea and vomiting where the main pathophysiological point is a loss of intravascular fluid volume. What then decreases the cardiac reload and results in low blood pressure and tachycardia. Cardiogenic shock, which can be caused by acute or severe chronic heart failure. An acute MI could cause that or infect an arrhythmia. I just had a patient yesterday who was so bradycardic with a heart rate of 25 that he was in severe cardiogenic shock. So pathophysiology in cardiogenic shock is the dysfunction of the heart is causing reduced cardiac output, reduced blood pressure. The body tries to counteract it to increase the amount of cardiac amines, but then leads to vasoconstruction that increase the myocardial oxygen demand and will make the cardiogenic shock worse and worse. Type of shock is your obstructive shock. And these are the one where if you diagnose them quickly, you can very likely make the patients much, much better. So we talk about cardiac tamponade, massive PEs, tension pneumothorax and aortic dissection. This time, the pathophysiology is caused by an obstruction of the heart or its great vessels. So there clearly can't be blood volume circulating and that reduces your cardiac output again. Okay. When you come to see a patient and you're in rhesus, what types of things are you looking for or asking in order to find out what has caused this shock? So I think the key with everything is history. Everyone needs to try to get as possible some history from the patient or relative to actually give you a good idea why this patient is in shock. From the history, what would lead you one way or the other? 
I mean, clearly, if this patient comes in as a trauma call to resus and there is a lot of blood loss reported, then that's very likely to be hypovolemic shock, similar to the patient had diarrhea and vomiting for a week. Clearly, trauma patient can have obstructive shocks as well, secondary tension, pneumothoraxis, or cardiac tamponade. I would like to know if the patient didn't have any trauma or no kind of acute fluid loss. And did this patient have any chest pain? Was there a history of a recent heart attack? At the same time, has this patient been treated for an infection with the GP or has the patient been unwell, the fever, rigors at home? That's going to my mind if I assess the patient at the bedside. Okay. And then clinically, what other features would you be looking for? As you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a big fan of point-of-care ultrasound. I think one of the most important parts is to find out about the etiology of the shock state, and ultrasound can really help with that. So I would do something called a rush scan or rapid ultrasound in shock and hypotension. And this scan involves the pump, so looking at the heart, the tank, where we look at IVC, jugular veins, we look for pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, ascites, and then the pipes to check for big aneurysms or dissection. And that can really help you to narrow down what type of shock that is. Once I have done that, I also add on some clinical examination. However, that doesn't usually give you as much information than a bedside ultrasound in my view. Okay. So basically from the ultrasound, then you know cardiogenic shock if the heart is not contracting well associated with those effusions. And when you're looking at the IVC, how would that help you to know which one it is? In printing cardiogenic shock, your IVC will be distended, so will be the jugular veins. Additionally, you would find some B-lines throughout your lung ultrasound, what will be a sign of congestion in your lungs. You might find distended IVC as well in your obstructive shock. So a patient with a large or massive PE or cardiac tamponade will have a distended IVC as well. Heart examination will be different to your cardiogenic shock with that. Hypovolemic shock gives you a flat IVC and flat jugular veins, while your septic or distributive shock can have normal or small IVC, particularly in the beginning of your septic shock. So it can really help. The combination out of the findings helps you get a better idea what etiology your shock is. Okay. You mentioned at the beginning in your actual definition of shock that it, or it can lead to end organ dysfunction. Are there any stages before that end organ dysfunction that we could intervene prior to that? Some people talk about a pre-shock stage where the patient is still in a phase of compensation. So the body is trying to keep vital organ perfusion maintained. So this is the case when your patient is periphery shut down. So he might feel cold, has cold and clammy extremities. And if you do a capillary refill time, that will be increased. There's generally decreased hydrostatic pressure, which increased absorption of interstitial fluids into intravascular space, what tries to help maintain your blood pressure. The patient might be tachycardic. There will be some degree of oliguria, so your kidneys are not fully perfused. So that is certainly a phase where when you act quickly and reverse the shock state, you will hopefully avoid permanent organ dysfunction. 
So signs associated with this compensatory phase is actually what we are assessing when a patient comes into research. So you mentioned the vasoconstriction, and then that leads to the lengthening of the capillary refill. So the capillary refill is one thing that is a compensatory mechanism. That tachycardia, that's compensatory of the body trying to keep up with things. The oliguria, again, trying to conserve that fluid in order to maintain organ perfusion. And then that's the pre-shock phase. And the next stage you're saying was the actual shock phase? In the actual shock phase, what you could call also the progressive phase of shock, there is worsening hypertension, peripheral tissues is hyperperfused, what then results in tissue hypoxia. Underperfused organs don't have oxygen to use, so they need to go into anaerobic metabolism. Anaerobic metabolism then will increase your lactate, and that can give you lactic acidosis. If you are acidotic, there is a compensation that you hyperventilate, so you get worsening tachycardia. Finally, the capillaries try to get as much blood as possible in to get as much substrate, so oxygen as possible, and that results in a pre-capillary dilatation, post-capillary constriction, what leads to pooling stasis of blood in the capillary bed that increases formation of microtrombi, so you can go into EIC, and that leads to further hypoxic injury to tissues. So it's a spiral of death. Okay. And so this is where we're actually seeing that failure of those compensatory mechanisms. So that tachycardia is no longer able to maintain the blood pressure. And so we actually see that hypotension and the, the acidosis. So on a VBG, it's one of the, the sepsis six, isn't it? And then in the form of the end organ damage, which is the last stage, how would we know if the patient has had end organ damage from their shock? If you look to different organs in our body, so can give you a hypoxic brain injury with autonomic dysfunctions. The heart is underperfused and you can get some type 2 myocardial infarction with sepsis that decrease your cardiac output even further. Additionally, there will be widespread cell necrosis that releases lysosomal enzymes. They further injure your tissues and your shock worsens system will be on overdrive it releases further cytokines what further harms your body and increases or leads to further disseminated intravascular coagulation finally your gut doesn't get perfused so it's very easy for bacteria in your gut to get into your bloodstream and worsens your sepsis and by the end it's a vicious cycle as we stated earlier on and your shock worsens and at some point, there is no recovery if your patient is going into multi-organ failure. To tie all those things together, Dr. Sack, so let's go back to the initial case where we were in recess and there was a young man with a blood pressure of 70 and a heart rate of 146. Can you just walk us through your assessment of that patient in the recess setting, what you do from an A to E point of view and how you'd manage that patient? Sure. So we do an A to E assessment to fall back, even in stressful situation, to not forgetting important examinations and treatments for our patients. So every, I would check if there's any evidence of tongue swelling or angioedema. In generally, if the patient is able to speak, then the airway should be okay. Go then to B for breathing, listening to the chest and see if there's any general wheezing there. Is there good entry on both sides? Could there be a pneumothorax on one of the sides of the lung? 
I want to feel for the trachea to check if it's in the middle. Then look for focal signs of infection, again, either with your stethoscope or with your ultrasound probe. Look for signs of pulmonary edema. If the patient has poor oxygen saturations, or in fact, the patient freezes fast, then a little bit of oxygen at this point should not harm. After B, going into circulation, I will try to get a blood pressure heart rate, recovery refill time, check the extremities. Are they cold, clammy, or are they rather warm to touch? Is there a fever? Check for the skin turgor and cover the refill time. Look for JVP. If the JVP is raised, again, it could be obstructive shock or cardiogenic shock. At this time, it's good to start resuscitate your patients. So two large bore cannulas need to go into both anticubital fossas, doing some routine bloods, including FBC using these LFP CRP blood cultures. Troponin might be good, a venous blood gas at this point, and the group is safe. You can send off a D-dimer, but I would be careful with that because it might not be particularly helpful. An ECG at this point will show you evidence of some cardiac ischemia or ST elevation MI or some arrhythmia. Once the cannulas are in and the patient is in shock, then I think a fluid bolus at this point would be very useful. So 500 milliliters of some normal saline or plasmolite or ringer's lactate, whatever you prefer. And think early about some kind of vessel support if you suspect sepsis. Again, if there's any suspicion of infection or sepsis, then early antibiotics could be beneficial. Once I've done C, I'm going into D for disability. There's a good time to check the pupils for response and either do a GCS or use your AFPU scheme, so alert, responsive to voice, responsive to pain, or unresponsive, what is actually good enough for disability in most cases. Check for any particular focal neurology deficits. And then E for exposure or examination elsewhere. If you want to check for blood loss or diarrhea or melina, check for rushes. And if you find clear evidence of major hemorrhage, then get a major hemorrhage protocol early on and transfuse appropriate. Okay. Is there anything specifically that we should be considering? So suppose we think it's an obstructive cause of the shock. What sort of things would we need to then do in order to rule in or rule out this as a cause of shock? So again, obstructive shock, if you suspect it, bedside ultrasound is your key helper. So you can check for pneumothorax with bedside ultrasound, so no kind of lung sliding on one side with no air entry on your clinic examination and the patient is in shock is a pretty good sign that this will be a tension pneumothorax. can help you to look for right heart strain for pulmonary emboli. Clearly, you can look for cardiac tamponade. If there's no expertise for a point of care ultrasound at this stage, then if you suspect a pulmonary embolism, then emergency CTPA is necessary to request and to get the patient in there. I would take some thrombolytic agents with me if I get to the CTPA with a patient who's as, as unwell as the patient in the scenario. A chest X-ray can exclude a large pneumothorax. We talked about echoes for tamponades or PEs already. For your trauma patient, remember, you might need to change your A to E assessment and treatment a little bit. You need to make sure there is no C-spine injury before you can actually move the neck. 
Remember, if your patient uh, has an obstructed area in the trauma patient, you shouldn't do a head to chin lift. You need to do a chart thrust with C-spine immobilization. Okay. You mentioned your initial choice of fluid and 500 mils of isotonic fluid. How quickly does that fluid need to be given? So if I have a patient in shock, then this fluid should be given as a fast bolus. If you're not quite sure if this patient could cope with some fluids, then passive leg raise of the legs for three minutes will give your patient around 500 milliliters of fluid into central circulation. And the beauty of that is that if the patient deteriorates with this fluid or gets more short of breath in the case of cardiogenic shock, then these fluids can be taken off easily and putting the legs back down and sitting the patient a little bit up again. So if you're not 100% sure if the patient can cope with fluid, do a passive leg raise test that can be really helpful as well. Okay, so it's a very good, simple measure of fluid responsiveness. And then lastly, just to wrap up a bit, are you aware of any of the recent studies surrounding shock and its management? So, Demi, there are a couple of really good studies came out for septic patients. We talked a bit earlier about capital refill time and lactate to assess actually your shock resolution. Recently, the Andromeda shock trial has been published in JAMA, uh, what was a multi-center randomized controlled trial, where they basically looked at shock resolution and monitored the patient either with capital refill time measurements every 30 minutes, and they the chronometer to really measure the time to return of normal skin color, or they measured lactate every two hours for eight hours with the goal to have a 20% reduction every two hours. And fairly large trial, 212 patients in each group, 424 patients altogether, and they looked at day 28 mortality. It was non-significantly better in your capital refill time, 35% versus 43% in the lactate clearance trial. Now, interestingly, the capital refill time group patients had less fluids in the first eight hours. They actually used less adrenaline compared to the lactate resolution group. They had lower lactate levels at 48 hours and every two hours and lower CRT levels. There was no difference, though, in mechanical ventilation-free days, renal replacement therapy, ICU lengths of stay, or hospital lengths of stay. Some people actually think that capital refill time seems to be a better monitoring, basically because you looked at your patient every 30 minutes instead of every two hours and changed treatment appropriately at the time. And so the more closely you observe and monitor your septic patient, then it seems to be for your patient's outcomes. Now, the other interesting trial is that you probably all remember in the past, we given fluids, 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 fluids for our septic patients, sometimes to the state where your young patient ended up with 10 or 12 liters of fluid in the first 24 hours. They looked on the next day a bit like Michelin man with periphery edema everywhere, big prolifusion, acidic fluid, so really struggling up there. And a few years ago, the so-called FEAST trial came out where they checked fluid resuscitation in African children who were admitted with sepsis and actually found that the less IV fluids and more oral rehydration improves mortality. And so there's the trend that we should treat really with earlier vasopressors these days and less fluid. And in 2019, the SEN trial was published. And that's actually a really interesting one. 
early use of norepinephrine or noradrenaline in septic shock in the randomized controlled trial. It was done in Thailand. Patients were recruited from 2013 to 2017. They need to be over 18 or less than 65. And they were excluded if their septic shock was there for already over an hour or they presented with other presentations. And what it did, they actually put 4 milligrams of noradrenaline and a 250 milliliter 5% dextrose back and tripped it in very slowly with a concentration of 0.05 micrograms per kilogram per minute through a peripheral line from early on of the patient treatment, while the standard group just had normal treatment without extra noradrenaline. And all the patients got treated with fluid boluses, antipyretic source control. And if they were fluid loaded with 30 mL per kilogram crystal rates and their mean arterial pressure was still low, less than 65, they had open label vasopressors. Most patients actually didn't make it to ICU in Thailand. They were managed on the ward. Not every patient had an arterial line either. Most had 15 minutes blood pressure checks. And actually looking at shock control at six hours in the early noradrenaline group, there was three quarters of patients versus half of the patients with standard treatment. Mortality was lower, but not significant lower in your early noradrenaline group. Need for open labels noradrenaline was lower in your early noradrenaline group. Pulmonary edema was half, 27.7% in your standard control group, 14.4% in your early noradrenaline group half the arrhythmia rates as well. So that's really a trial who shows benefit early vasopressors in our patient's treatment and not just filling fluid, fluid, fluid in. So if you take away one message from this talk as well is that your patients who are coming in with septic shock, yes, give them some fluids. However, they're not having a hypovolemic shock. It's distributed so they can have a little bit of fluid loading and then early vasopressors are very beneficial for your patients. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stack. That's been extremely helpful. All right. Thank you very much, Demi. See you next time.